Come on. Well, if you got your Bible, go to Acts chapter 5. Come on, somebody. Acts chapter 5. And as you're turning there, we've been in this series on Acts. We're going to continue it. We're going to go through the whole book of Acts. It's all about the early church, the very beginning of the church, how Jesus started his church, how he called his church to live with courage, to live with um, a demonstration of power and the works that Jesus did. He said, you're going to do these works, miracles, signs, wonders. People are going to come to believe in Jesus through your good deeds, through the way that you take care of the needs of the poor, um, through the way that you show the demonstration of the power of the gospel, and you'll be filled with power from the Holy Spirit. And next weekend is Pentecost weekend. Don't miss Pentecost weekend. It's going to, I mean, this has just been a buildup. I feel like God is wanting to do some revival, uh, not just some, but a whole lot of revival in the church. So Acts chapter before we get into Acts chapter 5, really Acts chapter 4 ends with the introduction to Acts chapter 5. So let's look at verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. This is Acts 4 verse 34. For time, from time to time, those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money from the sales. They would put this at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So we saw that happen this last weekend at Victory. This happens on a regular week um, at Victory where we are helping meet the needs of whether it's you know widows or orphans, single parents, whoever's, uh, whoever we can. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And so we're able to do different things for different people and help meet the needs of people, whether it's in the Dream Center, Victory Manford, Victory North, right here at Victory Tulsa, uh, whether it's people coming over uh, across the bridge from Walmart, coming over from apartments, just people in the church. We have grocery bags on site, trying to help meet the needs of people. So this is what the apostles were doing. The disciples were doing this. And there was a man named Joseph in verse 36, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. Now we're going to find out more about Barnabas later on. He was one of Paul's co-workers. In fact, Barnabas was the guy who came to Paul's defense when a lot of other disciples didn't trust Paul, didn't think Paul was telling the truth, didn't like Paul. They felt like he was, you know, maybe out to get them. And Barnabas was a great disciple. In fact, his nickname was the son of encouragement. That's a good nickname to have. You know, encouragement is something our world needs a lot of right now. Encouragement doesn't cost us anything. To encourage somebody, it is a free thing, and yet it has powerful dividends. It is one of the greatest investments you can make is just to encourage somebody, to speak life into somebody. Every day I try to encourage my wife. I try to encourage my kids. We try to encourage our boys. We say, you are mighty men of God. Even when they are acting rowdy and wild, even when we have to discipline them. I just speak life, encouragement. You, you have a sound mind in Jesus' name. We encourage our boys to encourage their sisters. Go tell Ellie that she's so pretty. Why do we do this? Because our world is hurting from a lack of fathers and mothers speaking life and encouragement into kids. What we saw happen in Uvalde, Texas this last week was not just demon possession, although I do believe that was a massive part of it, but it is a lack of a father 
love and affirmation and identity and encouragement at a young age. If we can train children up at a young age to know who they are in Christ, to speak life, our world is so full of just mean, bullying words. And if we can begin to shift the narrative in public schools and Christian schools and homeschooling, if we can begin to speak life, Barnabas was an encourager. Somebody say, I'm going to be an encourager. You never go wrong speaking encouragement to people. He sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now, Barnabas did this because he loved God and he loved people. That's the mission here at Victory. Love God, love people. Really simple. Love God, love people. Barnabas did this not because he wanted to impress the apostles, not because he wanted to pretend to be something he wasn't, not because he wanted to act like he was a wealthy man and dropping a big offering at the church and showing everybody. He did this because he cared to help people's needs. But what we see is kind of a contrast right after this. There was a, a couple who watched what Barnabas did. They watched what other people were doing and they said, we want to we wanna look impressive. Their motives were off. Watch this. It says now in verse one, Acts chapter five, a man named Ananias together with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles feet. So what he's doing here is he's not all in. He's he's doing something for the appearance of being religiously elite, being um, wanting to appear impressive in the eyes of Christians, wanting to appear like he is just as generous as Barnabas, that he's just as compassionate. And you know what? He didn't even have to do this. No one was forcing anyone to sell their property and give the money. This wasn't an expectation. This wasn't a, um, you know, you have to, there was no obligation. We're going to find out later on when Peter talks to him, he's, he's saying, this is your money. You didn't have to bring this. But when you bring something and you say, this is all it, and you know you're lying, you're not just lying to me, you're lying to the Holy Ghost. And, and what God is frustrated here is not greed, although there is a lot of greed, there is a clinging to his possessions here. What he's more frustrated with is hypocrisy, dishonesty. Like, if you're going to do something, do it. And, and if you're going to say that this is what you're doing, then make sure that you're saying it, like say it from a sincere heart. And this man holds back. And Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Now, I read this passage 20 times this week and I was thinking it's Memorial Day weekend and I'm about to preach on Ananias and Sapphira. And, and, um, and I was thinking, you know, Lord, give me like a, just a really encouraging sermon to the church this weekend. And I felt like the Lord said, don't skip this passage. How many of y'all have never really heard a sermon on Ananias and Sapphira? Um, if you've been in victory, you've heard my dad preach it in the past, probably. Um, it is so important in this day and age that we preach the whole counsel of the word of God. There are certain passages in the Bible where you kind of scratch your head and you're going, huh, what? <laughs> What do we do? How, do? how do we handle this one? How are we going to get through this? Let me say this. This is the only time in the New Testament where something like this happens. There are other moments where di disciples and apostles sin. They make big mistakes, worse mistakes than Ananias and Sapphira, and they don't fall down dead. So don't be afraid to come to church if you cussed um, or if you, you know, like I think some people read this story and they think, man, I'm going to get struck by lightning this week. God's against me. He's not. 
This is a specific moment in the early church as a warning that God cares more about sincerity than perfection. It's not about appearing perfect or selling your whole house and your car and giving it all, you know, to church or to missions. It's about living with a life that is just open and honest with God. You don't have to be open and honest with everyone on Facebook or everyone. Like, I don't sit down with my three-year-old and say, I need to confess all my sins to you because I got to be, he doesn't know what to do with that. He's like, okay, dad, tell me more, you know. He, my three-year-old, God's not expecting us to just, you know, open up and confess to everyone, but he is expecting us to be honest with him. And that's where Peter's talking to Ananias here is this is a warning for those of us in the church to be real with God. Just be real with God. If you're going to be real with anyone, be real with the Holy Spirit, because you can't, you can't deceive the Holy Spirit. You might be able to trick a lot of other people, but you can't trick God. He sees it. He knows it. So Peter looks at him. He says, Ananias, you've been deceived. You listened to a lie from the enemy. I almost titled this message lies that Christians believe, but I decided not to. I'm just going to keep the message. Chapter five. There are lies that certain Christians will believe. And one of the lies is that I need to appear religiously impressive in order to keep up with the other Christians in the church. No, you don't come as you are, give what you can be honest with where you're at. Open up to someone. You don't have to open up to everyone, but open up to someone about what you're struggling with. Be honest with God. God is not expecting perfection. There is a lie from the enemy, a religious lie that says you've got to appear that God cares more about how you appear than he cares that he cares more about your image than he does your soul. That's a lie from the enemy. God is more interested in your soul, the inside. What good is it if the outside of the cup is clean while the inside is ugly? What Peter was saying is Ananias, you didn't have to appear impressive. None of us are trying to appear impressive. Peter's like, I cut a dude's ear off. You think God's cool with that? He's not. But don't pretend to be someone you're not. Be honest. So he says, Ananias, you kept for yourself money and you acted like you didn't. You acted like this is all the money from your land. Didn't this money belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You could do whatever you want with your money. What made you think that you had to appear impressive? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. Now, some scholars believe he died from heart attack, that he died from shock, that he died from fear, that there was a panic attack that happened. Um, but I, I, I believe that in this passage, we don't fully know exactly what it was. We just know that God was dealing with the church in this moment and giving a warning that he cares more about honesty, that, there, that he cares more about sincerity. He cares more about surrender than he does impressing people with our image. And fear seized all who heard what had happened. There was a fear. And there was young men who came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? And she hasn't seen anything. She goes, mm-hmm, that's the, that's the money, you know? <laughs> And I could just picture it. I, Peter's just like, are you serious? And he says, the same men who just buried your husband are going to carry you out. Why and how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, 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 listen. It's so important that we listen to the Holy Spirit, that we lean in to surrender. Lord, I pray right now, God, 
that you would just stir a conviction in our hearts. Just close your eyes all over this place. Lord, I pray that we would be convicted to live with a fear of the Lord. Not that we are afraid of you, not that we are afraid of some intense, deadly judgment, but Lord, that we have a reverence for your presence, a reverence for your word, a reverence for who you are in our lives. God, that we care more about pleasing you than we care about pleasing men, that we care more about God just being surrendered to you than being impressive in the eyes of men. Lord, I repent for any hypocrisy God, in my own life. And I pray right now, Lord, for anyone in the room who just needs to repent to God for any hypocrisy, anything, God, that we would say was not fully honest with you, because you are the most important person for us to be honest with more than anyone or anything else. So God, I ask, Lord, for your grace, Lord, your mercy. And I pray in Jesus' name, God, that you would birth a purity in our hearts to honor you above all else. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Thank you so much, Carlos. I'll call you back in just a moment. Oswald Chambers said this, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Some people question whether Ananias and Sapphira were actually, actually believers, actually believed in God. Um, and, and there is, I've read tons of articles this last week of, of different people who kind of studied this story and they said there was kind of a split down the middle that these two possibly were not actually believers, but imposters, that they wanted to kind of be a part of this group of power, but they weren't all in. They didn't truly believe in God or the Holy Spirit. It was more like they just wanted to appear impressive. It's so important that we put our full faith and trust in God that we trust God for our provision, that we trust God for our protection, that we trust God for not just our provision financially, but our provision of emotional needs, that we trust God is going to take care of the needs in our life, that we trust that God protects even the areas in our life that he's working on. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they had some things that needed to be worked on. They needed to be in a place of discipleship. They needed to be in a place of receiving from God. And if they were going to give, they needed to be honest about what they were giving to God. Instead, they were clinging to their possessions. This last week, my son Benaiah, he found a bird outside our house. And the bird was, you know, crippled. And it was still alive, but he couldn't fly. And so um, Benny, you know, he's like, Daddy, can I, can I get the bird? I said, well, let's just, you know, let's let the bird be in peace. Because Benny, Benny, when Benny finds something, he goes all in with whatever he finds. And I said, let's just, let's just let the bird be in peace. But before I could stop him, he had already picked the bird up. And he's like, pretty bird, pretty bird. <laughs> you know? And he's holding this bird. And, uh, and Mac comes around. And Mac's like, let me, let me touch that bird. Now, Mac is a rough character. He's still growing in the Lord. We're praying just for a full discipleship in Mac's life, all of our kids' lives. But Mac, you know, he gr grabs that bird and Benny's like, Mac, you're squeezing it too tight. And he goes, okay, here you go. And he gives him back the bird. Liam's petting the bird. And uh, next thing I know, the bird's head is like this. And I was like, Benny, what happened? He's like, he's just sleeping. He's just sleeping. Pretty bird. Pretty bird. <laughs> Our pets' heads are falling off. Like, this, this, this bird, this bird was dead. And I'm looking at Benny. I go, Benny, you squeezed it too tight. He goes, no, 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 I'm protecting it. I'm protecting it. And then a few minutes later, he's like, yeah, he's dead. And um, so he does a funeral for the bird. And they buried him in the yard. And I feel so bad for that bird. Lord, forgive us. Um, 
But I noticed that the more that he held tightly to that bird, that bird wasn't going to make it. And there's something about holding tightly to our possessions. What Peter was trying to tell Ananias and Sapphira was one, don't lie to God. But two, why, why do you think holding back a part of it is going to bless you? If, if you believe that God's your provider, why not just give it all to God? You're watching Barnabas do this. You're watching other people do this. And when you have a full trust in God, you're not trying to cling to your stuff. You're not trying to cling. When God asks you to give something, he intends to bless you on the other side of whatever he asks you to give. When God leads you in a conviction. Now, these disciples were doing this from a free will offering. There was no pressure to do this. Last weekend, there's no pressure. Uh, when, when we ask you to be a part of giving in the offering, we're not trying to say, do this until you, you know, don't have enough money to pay for it. We're just saying, give to God, trust him to take care of your needs. Whatever God lays on your heart to give to him, continue to rise in a place of generosity because the world of the generous gets larger and larger while the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. And when you don't fear God, to fear God doesn't mean to be scared of God. It means to trust God. To fear God means you actually believe there is a God and that God is to be honored, to be esteemed, to, to be respected. It is to firmly embrace God's heart, to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. God doesn't hate people. God doesn't hate human beings. God doesn't, even sinners, even this guy who committed a heinous crime in Uvalde, Texas, God still loves him. Now, in our human minds, we don't understand how could God love someone who did something so terrible? Why, why would I love a person who does something so terrible? We need to carry a love for humanity the way that God loves humanity. Otherwise, we won't know how to help change people who are in a process of headed towards destructive paths if we don't learn how to love people the way God loves them. We hate sin. We hate darkness. We hate the effects of sin, how it brings so much pain and destruction in the earth. But the fear of the Lord is to love what God loves. God loves people. To hate what God hates, God hates sin. And to have a, a cherished value on his presence and his word. To say, God, I care about your word. I care about your presence. I honor you. Lord, when I miss it, I want to be sincere and honest with you. The fear of the Lord is not perfection in your life. It is surrender. This is what Peter was trying to teach to them in this moment. It says a great fear seized the whole church in this moment and everyone who heard about these events. Now, after this, the apostles performed, in verse 12, many signs and wonders among the people. Where there is a reverence for God, there's more miracles that can happen. I remember preaching at a church in Peru, and it was a massive church, and this was several years ago. This was 10 years ago, and things have changed since then, but I remember when I preached, nothing happened, and I thought, man, I am a bad preacher. You know, like one person got saved, one person got healed, and I, I was preaching my heart out, just sweating, and uh, the translator, he was kind of falling asleep on me in the back, you know, like he would sit down. I was up at the front of the stage. He was sitting on the drum. He was literally sitting back here just interpreting for me, and he wouldn't walk all the way up there, and occasionally I would look back, and he was just kind of laying down. <laughs> I'm preaching to thousands of people, and this guy's sitting on the, on the drum stand back there, and and I was so frustrated. I was like, God, what did I do wrong? The next day, I preached in a very small church just two hours away from this city. 
And it was packed out. There was about 500 people there. I preached the same message. I felt like the Lord said, preach that same message of faith. And the whole church responded to the altar. Dozens of people got healed. Dozens of people got saved. There was an outpouring. You could feel the presence of God so thick in the room. And I heard the Lord say, the difference was these people valued my presence. These people cherished the word of God. They had a hunger. They had a lean in. They had an honor and a reverence. Just last week when I went to the PGA tournament, you could feel the honor and the reverence when Tiger Woods would walk down a certain part of the field. Everyone was quiet with their phones out. They were like, don't say anything. It's Tiger Woods. He's 10 feet away from us. And it was 30 people back, I mean, thousands of people reverencing the presence of Tiger Woods. What if we reverence the presence of God the way that people reverence the presence of an athlete or a celebrity? What if we reverence the very presence? What if we said, God is in the room. His word is being preached. Oh my God, he's about to do something miraculous in this place. What if we reverence God? The way that we reverence athletes and, 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 and celebrities, there, there was such a reverence that miracles begin to happen. Left and right, watch what happens. Verse 13, no one dared to join this group because they were so respectful of them. They were highly regarded. The church was influencing society. Instead of society influencing the church, the church was influencing. Come on, God's getting ready to give the keys of America back to the church. Public schools are about to open to spirit-filled churches. There's about to be discipleship programs in feeding centers, in homeless shelters, in medical. God's about to do something in hospitals, in orphanages, in boys' homes, in rescue homes, where there's been a shut door to the church. God's getting ready to unlock doors that have been shut in America because the church has the answers to the problems in the world.